Welcome back to Edinburgh Film Podcast. My name is Kat Zabeka and in this episode we're talking about the moon. I'm so excited for this episode because rather than talking to a film theorist, I am joined by Dr Ali Bruce and Matt Vidmar from the Royal Observatory here in Edinburgh. From Melia's trip to the moon through Destination Moon to First Man, and from the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova in 1968, to Jessica Meyer and Christina Cook, the first women to complete all-female spacewalk on October 18 this year, we discuss the role of the moon in human history, space exploration history and women's history. For now, this is Ali Bruce and Matt Bimar. So first of all, um, tell me about what you do, just so that we can give uh, listeners some sort of context. Um, you said that you're based at Royal Observatory, both of you. Do you want to mm. go first? I, I, well, I can, though I suppose, you know, you being the scientist should take the lead in this. <laughs> well, but, um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I've been at the observatory... So yeah, Blackford Hill is nice, but a lot of Edinburgh doesn't know we're there because it's not the biggest of Edinburgh hills. So mm. if you live in that sort of neck of the woods, um, it does look awesome and sort of dominates the skyline. <laughs> but the minute you get into the centre of town, you're like, where? <laughs> uh, so the observatory, I've been there since 2013, finished my PhD uh, nearly two years ago now. So they've they've been silly enough to hire me as a, as a, a postdoctoral researcher. So I do... Um, research into quasars so I've been doing observations of active galaxies with um, a telescope in La Palma um, which is down in the Canary Islands and uh, so that's where my science is coming from Um, but they've also hired me as a 50-50 split so as part of my other duties uh, at work I have to work for the James Webb Space Telescope UK public engagement campaign Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's this new space telescope that's going to launch very soon and will launch in 2021, definitely will. And uh, the UK has a very small pot of money for doing uh, activities to try and raise awareness in schools and activities for people. So I'm, I'm helping to spool some of that out to people. Amazing. And if you haven't heard of it, it's my fault. <laughs> well, yeah. Not exclusively, partially mine as well, because I do get you know to do quite a lot of public engagement. Um, but yeah, so um, I'm also based at the Royal Observatory, but in a very different part of the building too to Ali. Um, so I am an astrophysicist by training, which means I have an undergraduate degree in astrophysics or something similar. <laughs> um, um, but I have since moved on to do more social science, as I've mentioned. Um, so social science in terms of understanding innovation mm-hmm. coming out from um, astronomy and space research more broadly. There is a space industry in Scotland um, and the Royal Observatory, amongst other places, is trying to see what it can do to support um, these developments and, and my research is sort of in support of that. So it's basically looking at um, small and medium-sized companies getting stuff actually to fly in space. Um, it's about getting data off those satellites um, and, and develop applications to ease earthly life like, you know, all this sort of navigational stuff and, of course, observa- observing the Earth um, for environmental monitoring, agriculture, stuff like that. So th- there's, a, there's a huge ecosystem developing. It's basically my role as a researcher and partially as a, as a sort of developer is to try and work out what can we do to make that all come together. And, and so I'm based in a, in a building at the observatory called the Higgs Centre for Innovation, which is the latest addition uh, to the observatory family. The observatory is kind of made of various kind of bits. Um, Alice sits mainly in the Institute for Astronomy, which is part of the University of Edinburgh. Yes, um, everything's at capacity up there now. Yeah, so, like, so we're literally yeah. looking for hammock space. And <laughs> we're going to be hot desking soon. There's going to be another hut. There's going to be another hut. Um, it's too busy. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there's the Institute for Astronomy, but there's also the UK Astronomy Technology Centre, which is a, a national laboratory that's run by the, the, the 
Research Council, um, and 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 that's actually most of the site, and and it is with them that actually I work more closely than I do with with the IFA. They they do a lot of funny yeah. stuff. So it's it's literally the detectors that are going on the back of the world's biggest telescopes and the newest shiniest space missions. Wow. Uh, so a piece of web was assembled in Edinburgh and then sent down to get in- integrated into a larger instrument. So it's yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff happening next door. And uh, how does Moon fit in to your research? Does it is it there at all or uh, I guess the short answer is no mm. um, but there's a lot of us like myself and yourself Matt um, which is kind of moon nerds <laughs> and you know I, I wasn't born in the Apollo era so I didn't grow up with that space race but when I was 10 I saw Apollo 13 which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point and then I was hooked and I just you know I'm sort of a space race nerd now and um, so I've been having a lot of fun this year with the, the 50th anniversary just running around armed with a Lego rocket <laughs> trying to explain to people how the rocket sort of works because there's a lot and of you, fun you have that video on uh, Twitter is that right uh, uh, of you explaining the moon landing it's like a 60 minute video of yeah it's like, it's like a, well, Twitter's got a weird short limit on the video length oh, so okay. it's a YouTube one oh, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's the link yeah. is on, on your Twitter that's a nice shameless plug there thanks <laughs> so yeah that video was a lot of fun because it's kind of in 18 minutes you sort of you get the how of it um, yeah. rather than the what and the why which yeah. is arguably another 18 minute video on that as well yeah. but just only going, 18 <laughs> that's ambitious but just, you're just sort of pointing out what bits of the rocket did what when and yeah. sort of showing roughly how Neil comes down in the lander for Apollo 11 that, that's nice to have in your head because you're like oh that's how it happened and it, it can sort of make it a wee bit more I guess tangible because mm-hmm. I don't know if you think yeah the moon tends to be a little bit ethereal, which is really pretty much where my not again not quite research but engagement with the moon comes in because likewise I don't do any particular research with the moon, um, but um, I'm really quite interested in um, the links between particularly space science and arts uh, and use that for various kind of purposes. You know, one of them, obviously, one is, as, as Ali just said, um, to engage people about the moon and, you know, you kind of have this kind of very interesting um, ways in which you can conceptualise and visualise, you know, all of those kind of distances and spaces and all this sort of stuff. Um, but the other part, of course, is to try and figure out what is the next phase in terms of, you know, space exploration, mm. in terms of industry. Um, so, yeah, so I... I, I, I I do get to use the moon in that way more than I do in any particular kind of research. Um. So then what is your relationship with the moon? And I do, I really mean this on a very personal level. What is your first almost, not I don't say memory with the moon, but experience of it? I'll flip this on your head because actually I've had a recent really really kind of little wake up not wake up moment but you know you, you, you know I, I kind of a moon epiphany a moon epiphany a moon epiphany <laughs> yes absolutely um, and that was when I did a talk in the Museum of the Moon or rather under, you know, underneath the whole moon do you know there's no about Museum oh, of you, the Moon but both Alistair and I did a talk thing. at some point under the moon so this is a, this is an art installation it's a, I think about six metre wide um <gasps> Inflatable, yeah, I think seven moon. meter diameter. Seven meter diameter. Luke Jerem was the artist's name, yep. I think. So I think we've seen it. Was it in the cathedral? Yes, yes. Royal Mall. Yes, yep. yes, yep. we have yep. seen yep. it. So, yes. so Ali and and colleagues actually did a, a, a talk uh, at St Giles under the under the moon. moon. That's incredible. I, I've done a similar talk in Stromness in Orkney under the because uh, 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 there's actually a couple of them. There's not there's one. like half a dozen. Yeah, yeah there's, there's quite a few of them. Yeah, yeah, so if yeah, you want a seven meter Earth, I think that might be coming to to dynamic Earth. But to be able to walk around the moon was for me really transformative because you know you always talk about you know the bright side and the, well the dark side or rather the side that we don't get to see it's not dark it's just that we don't you know humans normally don't get to see it mm. apart from the Apollo astronauts about whom I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more uh, but um, 
just that kind of wholeness of it, that three-dimensional. And you can see it on, on in images and videos and whatever in simulations, but to have it as a physical thing, even though it was, of course, so much smaller, but, you know, made from images to scale of the actual lunar surface, which just, I don't know, I kind of, that really excited me about the 50th, you know, the 50th anniversary um, was kind of, you know, I only really got excited about it about last year when I was at the Museum of the Moon and I was like, we really should talk more about it. We really <laughs> should <laughs> hug this thing and just kind of, you know, run with because well, it's just so much, so much more. Yeah, this, the, than you a, think. the moon sort of comes with it. I don't know. It's, it feels like it's. I don't know if it's in the DNA or something cultural that's like profound, and uh, so that like you know the moon can just look like a plate when you're like flat two D. See image of it. It's two D. But the minute you put magnification on it. So that's that's I, I guess my earliest abiding memory of the actual moon is mm. putting my just got telescope when I was mm. young didn't have a clue what to do but managed to get it to focus and so Jupiter and the moon were the two things that I still remember and I was I wasn't even outside I was looking through my bloody window <laughs> it was cold I was like so the telescope was like in my parents' bedroom and the moon was out there and I was looking at but it, it becomes this three D thing the minute you put a magnification True. on it and so mm. binoculars are good for that as well and your your brain just goes I get it. I can see that it's round. I literally, as my homework as part of this, I finally, um, so my um, uh, my brother-in-law, he'll be really annoyed that it took me a year to watch this darn thing, but he gave me the DVD of um, The First Men in the Moon, the, okay. uh, the H.G. Wells one, mm-hmm. and it's uh, Ray Harryhausen's special effects, and he actually works with Ray Harryhausen's actual exhibits, and, mm. you know, I'm so jealous of him having that job. Um, and he was sort of talking about this one and sort of it's not one of the more well-known Ray mm-hmm. Harryhausen ones. He's normally famous for skeletons and yeah. Clash of the mm-hmm. Titans and stuff. But the, the special effects were really good. And the movie was made before Apollo was even on the drawing board. So mm. that that was, in, I think it was like 1959, I think. And mm. we didn't really start launching people into space until exactly the, around about that time. When was when was Gagarin's flight? Was that yeah, 59? 58, 58. So uh, yeah, it was kind of nice because they'd sort of already had fun imagining this before anyone ever sat out to actually go and do it seriously so that was mm. that was cool um, I, I saw a really nice talk um, Simon Malpass um, he pointed out something that hadn't really hit home for me which is that um, in in the literature um, back in the day it was an ethereal place that you couldn't get to Mm-hmm. So the moon was there, and it was like a place for divine beings or, or whatever. And then there was a sort of shift, and at some point, um, it was started to, um, people were telling stories about getting there. And mm-hmm. there was a wonderful story that he showed the picture mm-hmm. of, and like a wood a woodcut image of um, something like a hundred swans oh, yeah. sailing somebody Bishops, to the moon. Bishops, what's his name? Okay. Yes. Um, yes. So it, like, so, and he was saying that was one of the earlier examples of, mm-hmm. you know, let's just go and we can go with, with birds, we'll, we'll fly to the moon and, you know, a bit similar to the sort of Icarus touch the sun mm-hmm. kind of thing. But y- the more those stories got told, the more m- the moon became a little bit more tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you sort of run the clock forward and you get to the point where sci-fi, we're now talking about going there and living there and other people living there. And I think the possibility that people were living on the moon is something I don't know about how, was that always a thing? You mm-hmm. know, when it was ethereal, was it God's living there or, you know. and when All that cheese, you know. Just about everybody who's told a story <laughs> about going to the moon, the moon is not barren mm. and sort of dead. Like yeah. it kind of is. I mm. mean, it's, it's, you know, you'd have to really drill down into some amazing hotspot for life to find anything alive on the moon. Um, but everybody was like, yep, there's oceans, that's fine. And uh, the lunar seas were sort of named for that, even mm. though it's not seas. Um, and so, yeah, everybody had, I think they were calling Selenites, mm-hmm. was the, yeah. um, so Selene being the yep. um, the word for moon. But the, 
uh, that was the Harry Housen H.G. Wells, there's mm-hmm. Selenites uh, or Selenites, I don't even know how you pronounce it. But no. <laughs> so why do you think we even began to, to think about getting there? Is, that, is, this, is this something that's in us that's quite innate to human nature why i always wonder about that just why it's that gfk thing isn't it it's because it's there it's, you know <laughs> why why climb the highest mountain why why do these things because it's there and, mm. and you know so i think yes from an exploration point of view yes and i think i'm, I'm more of an explorer brain but I, I do feel like that for some people it was a less of an explorer more of a sort of conquer <laughs> I, I, I sadly have to say that you know, f- you know f- looking from a historical point of view I think it's, you know, it was quite a lot of that actually the geopolitics was quite a significant driver because one of the things that could have been done differently is just how we get there right we want we went there a very kind of air force sort of way right you build the big rocket you shoot the big rocket at the thing and you know you send people you know they, they get there they come back that's it right um, whereas you know the you know the other way to do it, of course, would be much more modular, right? To launch smaller craft that kind of assemble themselves together in Earth orbits and then kind of you know hover over or hover um, um, using using um, various sort of orbital transfers. They manage to get themselves aligned to go over to the moon. Um, you know, spend some time there. You know, more a kind of spaceship kind of idea. Um, mm-hmm. That is actually, to be fair, some of the science fiction was trying to kind of point towards that, right? I mean. If you look at in the way people are thinking about um, orbital stations, you know, you know, actually having space stations, you know, in Earth's orbit, in between the Earth and the Moon, round the Moon, um, you know, bases on the Moon, to get to that kind of vision, you'd need to go in a very different way. So this first shot at the Moon was really just about, you know, it was kind of because the, 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 this was kind of, you know, already when when you were saying kind of um, why are people going and you know how are people going, uh, you know the if we start with the films, right, the, we, we land in 1902, right? very famous, uh, the Voyage de la Lune, um, which, of course, was actually a, a projectile. It was literally fired off a big cannon. That's, that's your Jules Verne moonshot. Yeah, right that's there. your Jules Verne moonshot. <laughs> yeah. damn yeah, Just gun. get a big gun. <laughs> just get a big gun. Pointed in the right direction. And, and to be fair, in many ways, Apollo was like that. It was It was firing a big gun at the moon. Um, and we are only at the beginning of of actually going there, of going there as as a species rather than as just you know, a couple of flags. And you know, not to say that they've done they've done amazing, amazing. You know, by by being there and by also exploring there, um, but by going as humanity, I think we we're still a long way off to actually you know saying that we've been to the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of people have landed. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. So let's talk film specifically. Sure. Um, how where are you on the film front? Do you feel like you love films? You watch films every day? Uh, given my, my, my love for moon stuff and astronomy stuff, I'm a huge sci-fi fan, so I tend mm-hmm. to watch as much sci-fi as I can. And these days there's almost too much to watch now. There's mm-hmm. so many TV shows and I can't keep up. I haven't even finished The Expanse yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm not doing so well. But the, the Expanse is a nice example of they're trying their best to get some of the science right or the physics. I think that's the first sci-fi thing I've ever seen where they actually turn around and slow down before they get to their destination. Wow. I was like, oh, I nearly cried. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's physics. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, an awful lot of time you just point the rocket and fire the rocket towards the thing you're going to and it looks nice in the sci-fi shot, but you just that's not the way to park around the space <laughs> no. station. Um, so yeah, I guess 2001 had some nice um, stuff mm. in there. So they, they got a lot right just from there. But um, yeah, so everything in between 2001, The Expanse. Um, I'm... I tend to like more um, f- 
you know, science, well, sci-fi or just, you know, films that are um, pre-event, right? I mean, with the moon, it's a little bit like, well, we've been to the moon. There's kind of certain <laughs> facts have been established, you know, things have been done. Like, I mean, it's like, you know, I don't know, it's just it's that kind of boundary. I really like really early stuff. For instance, if you think about the moon specifically, I, I quite, I quite find the, the the 1950s in particular that kind of you know early moon craze mm-hmm. quite quite endearing i think it's brilliant i think it's got some really interesting concept um and i think uh, this is maybe a little bit my you know you know being professionally distorted but um it's it's i quite like where you know you're exploring unknown things with film um and i just find the kind of the action the kind of you know the, the polo certain a little bit like yeah yeah, that happened. <laughs> that didn't quite happen. Oh, see, I, I'm kind of Apollo thirteen like, got me hooked. I know. I, mean, that I was know. Like Sorry. I was like, they were talking about gimbal lock all the time, and I was like, somebody explain what gimbal is. <laughs> and that, so you know, I literally, and you know, back then there wasn't a Wikipedia that mm. I could easily find this stuff out. And these days, I'm constantly relearning things because I've you know made some naive assumptions and just sort of you finally figure it all out, and you're like, this is great. And so I, I kind of love all that tangible. How do you actually do yeah. it? Stuff. Mm. I was um, eleven when Wikipedia came I, in, so. Yeah. <laughs> So already um, up to yeah, speed. Um, yeah. Can I just check who's a Trekkie and who's not a Trekkie? Or like, you know, Star Wars or Star yeah. Trek? Is this, you know, is this something that, that gets factored yeah. in? I'm, I'm I was scared to say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a, yeah. I, I was a Next Generation kid. So mm. Jean-Luc Picard, he's Matt Captain. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of, that was about as fantastical as you could get mm. as far as what I was watching on TV goes. And yeah, I just kind of, um, I don't know if part of the reason I, got into astronomy is because of shows like that as well mm. where you just kind of it's the what ifs and you know exactly and yeah. that that moment where you go i can never get to the moon this is unlikely to ever happen mm-hmm. in my lifetime so the only way i can go is to let other people do this well for me and yeah. then i can get taken along so the movies i like are the ones that put me on the moon mm-hmm. or put me in a convincing way somewhere yeah. else and they're the ones i like and so uh how so why do you matt for instance like those 50s Films <laughs> and what? Which ones are your favourites? What is oh. it? Are there? Is there anything very specific that appeals to you apart from those sort of exploring the what if, as as we said before? Well, a lot of the things. I mean, the the, the good ones, of course. Um, kind of. There's a there's an actual there's an actual. I'll, I'll bring in a, a so security studies term here. It's about <laughs> pre-mediation, right? You know, you actually predict not the predict the future but kind of you know gameplay the future and the good ones actually where they've done quite a bit of research uh, you know look you know there's obvious there's obvious flaws sometimes deliberate flaws sometimes you know just you know they couldn't be made the right way uh, special effects did evolve a bit since then um but there's um you know they kind of create um really kind of, you know, images that kind of completely correspond to what happened afterwards. Um, you know, if there's Man in the Moon has had advisors from British Interplanetary Society um, mm. and they've kind of, you know, built up this kind of really kind of, you know, the moon, if you look at the the, the, the uh, lunar vehicles and the rockets, um, they kind of look relatively genuine, right? I mean, they look like, and of course this is, you know, this is right before the Apollo era. So there wasn't the leap between, you know, 1960 when the film came out and, you know, 64, whatever, um, when the Apollo really started to kick off. And then of course, but you know, there weren't those images, you know, the images really, the proper images really started to show in like, you know, 60, 68, right? With the, with the, with the pre, uh, with the, you know, Apollo 8 and things like that. So, that's the kind of you know that's the kind of really big shift, right? To be able to 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 kind of see what those things would look like. Um, so I find that amazing. I find that like just technically impressive, and I just like 
you know, seeing what was gotten right and what wasn't. I mean, this is again a bit of a more of an analytical thing. Mm. Um, I also just enjoy wacky stories sometimes, um, <laughs> and there's an awful lot. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the early stuff is 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 deliberately because they knew that they don't know, so they deliberately made them into parodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Man in the Moon, as I say, 1960, very good example. The um, the first Man in the Moon. So this is um, um, the story is very. I, I'm not supposed to be giving too many spoilers to the oh go ahead, here, but <laughs> go I mean, ahead. It's, it's about it's about um, um, a, a man with a sort of not quite superhuman powers, but he's kind of immune to all diseases, apparently, or something like that, um, gets selected to be the first astronaut to go to the moon. And and it's kind of trekking this expedition. The film is kind of trekking this expedition. And, of course, there's lots of uh, wacky things in between and, um, you know, from relationships and things and, and, and stuff. And, and there's some really interesting tech solutions, if you can call them that. And as I say, you know, I kind of research to the point that when you're seeing the various bits, you're like, you know, sure, it's all, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, plasterboard and you know, just a bit of you know, cardboard. I'm okay and with that. stuff. You know, that but kind of hitchhiker's kind of guide to the galaxy. Yeah, yeah that's cardboard sort of, that's set. Sort of, that's you sort just of, do it right and you own it. Yeah. That's, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> very interesting because um, because I've recently seen a, a in an alternative moon mission. Mars mission, uh, um, an arts production. This is, this is not. I mean, it is it is shot as a film, but the, the whole idea was the actual performance on the day was the thing, which was about having a a, a kind of a, a low budget kind of private um, citizen mission to space, um, and it's shot with this sort of you know part of it is about um, uh, stop motion, part of it is about. Um, you know, acting with you know, they've constructed these sets which are you know completely like you know, it's almost you know, it's like you know, lollipop buttons and things like that. You know, it's like, but everything <laughs> kind of you know, you, you look at it and you kind of, it's that kind of creativity about exploration that I find fascinating. Is the ability to fill in the gaps, to you know, move beyond what is certain. And you know, I say this as a scientist, really, you know, as a mm. social scientist and a scientist, right? But I, I find that fascinating that the fact that you can actually make those leaps between what is possible and and is fact and what isn't and of course you know there's things that you know you should draw a line right you know like you know, there's there's definitely things that you know you should never have thought of but um i can't think of any particularly good example right now but anyways, i actually yeah. have one I, okay I, I, go, go, I'm, go, sorry, go. I'm so happy about this i was researching moon films yesterday on and you know how on imdb you have the little description yeah. there yeah. so missile to the moon released in 1958 it, the description says an astronaut uh, and his team find a big spider, women in stockings, and rockmen on the moon. What? And that's it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and I, and I, I, I have exploration film. <laughs> I'm intrigued, but also terrified. That's that's, <laughs> I think that's, that's the accurate. I mean, that was such yeah. funny. That blows what I was just about to say out the water because I was going to say context is everything. You know, I'm <laughs> yeah. kind of like, and if you're going to go to the moon and you need something magical then make a box and just say a wizard did it and then i'm fine with that i'll, yeah, I'll join yeah. you on that journey yeah. but then i think it's the movies that try and do it right and fail uh they're the ones that i struggle with because mm-hmm. i'm just kind of like oh but you tried so hard and then Argh. so yep. it's kind of like either do it or don't do it mm-hmm. and if you're not going to do it, that's fine i'm not going to judge your movie but then if you do it and then forget your own rules, rules later yeah. then you've mm-hmm. just broken that world yeah. for me and i can't i'm, I can't I'm with that board. as well so yeah little yep. annoying things like that but talking about different special effects, Destination Moon, for instance, that I did watch uh, in preparation for this podcast, which I really yep. did not enjoy. Um, Why was it rubbish? Just because I felt the story was missing. I felt like it was preoccupied with the special effects and the idea of getting to the moon. And uh, 
it's literally within like the first 10 minutes they they literally jump on a ship and just go because it's as easy <laughs> as that yeah so that journey is missing i suppose yeah, yeah, i think yeah. i think you're yeah. right i think you know, yeah i've only yeah i've not seen the whole thing the issue else when it's funny because they've got this paint that's like anti-grav well not anti-grav it's like it's supposed to just negate gravity so mm. you paint your thing in this and it switches gravity off if you're inside the paint oh um, but for whatever reason when you do this it launches into the sky and you're kind of like wait a minute that's <laughs> anti-gravity is what yeah. you've got there what yeah. you've just oh. told me is that yeah it was like you know you pull down a sunshade you switch off the sun so you put up this paint and uh. the the gravity can't see you either but then it still doesn't explain how it's able to fly and i'm kind of like i have problems with this that's interesting um, but then harryhausen made it look really cool mm. um, so I'm, I'm kind of again it's that that moment where i guess every good moon movie has this moment where you're on the surface for the first time mm-hmm. And I think First Man has the the sort of that's now the crowning achievement, where you go outside as the air is sort of bleeding away, and mm. it goes completely silent, and you're just there. And I think with First Man, they did um, they were working really hard to up the quality of the film throughout the film. So um, I need to double check the numbers, but I think it's like um, it's, it's sort of um, fifty mil film or whatever. Is mm. it thirty eight mil? Is it it's like one smaller format? Then it goes up to a bigger format, mm. and then it goes up to four K mm-hmm. for the moment you see the moon for oh. the first time. So as an audience member, you haven't realised that the quality's been getting better and yeah. better, or at least that's the plan. So mm. it really hits you, and you're like, oh my god! So yeah, that was that's a heck of a moment. Mm. Um, but even in Apollo thirteen, so we were watching that just over this weekend, and. I was so impressed because we, we were watching those scenes. I was watching those scenes where um, they are in space and one of them throws up and then they're just weightless. And you kind of think, there's no way there are wires in this scene. Like, how do they do that? Do that? And they were um, in zero gravity at the time when they were filming it, which is insane to think that you, anyone would do that just for a film, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know how many trips on the, the, they call it the Vomit Comet, I think. So it's, yeah. a, it's a jet plane with padded walls and they use it for training astronauts mm, and yeah. they built a set in yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking. How many trips did this well, take? It, that makes it not padded. Uh, well, yeah, they, they would have right? lumps and bumps and so, so they, they get even less quite dangerous. Time. So, right. yeah, yeah, when they go into the free fall, mm-hmm. they would have then had to leg it into the set, I think, because oh, you're, wow. you're supposed to have a controlled uh, environment. And then, you know, so that throwing up apparently happens to just about everybody because you're mm. doing it like 30 times on oh. one flight oh, wow. and you only get about 30 seconds of CG. intense. Um, and those but were long scenes as well that they did. Yeah. In the shots with the orange juice and stuff and yeah. you can really see how the liquids are behaving. Yeah, yeah. And yeah it's, it's very weird. You can tell there's a couple of shots where they look like they're bolted to the roof mm-hmm. where they, all of a sudden Tom Hanks' veins are popping out of his head and you're like, you're upside down, <laughs> Tom. <laughs> I can tell. Gravity is still working on you, my friend. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they worked really hard to get that looking right. So, um, what do you think is the point of these films? Do you feel like they do they do anything to the actual science, to the actual facts? Do they, if they do alter them, or even if they get them right, is is it good for science in general? Is it good to revisit those events again and again, or different fantasies about the moon in general and space? Um, is it damaging to the science? Is it is it quite inviting actually for the on- audience? Do you think, or why do we again enjoy them? I guess on the is it damaging front, I would I would maybe argue no, because no, I sort of agree. feel like, um, I, I feel like it's it's good training. If you watch bad shonky sci-fi, you kind of know it's nonsense. Like there's an intrinsic thing. Um, where it gets greyer is when the movie's trying to do everything right like Interstellar and then you assume that everything then is correct in that film. So there's maybe a slight danger there, but at the same time, 
nobody watching that film will then go and operate the same machinery yeah, exactly, in yeah. a lab or anything. So it's, it's, it's kind not of a manual. I, I think it's, it's more. Film. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> a, can, it's yeah. a. It's an interesting. It's a hook. It's a. It's a tangible. We're going here. We're going to do this, and as you say, it's the the telling of the stories. So I think. Apollo 13 is a really good watch because it's a story of survival and it's that classic sort of, where is it, the, the seven main stories in every film is just one of those or a combination of them. Mm. So the journey to the moon at the beginning is mundane already and it's only the third launch to the moon and mm. the people are already switching off on the TV and then it goes wrong and then it's about staying alive and that's what keeps you sort of hooked. You're like holding your breath to the end of the film even though you know they make it. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, And then you've got movies like uh, Moon, the Sam Rockwell one, which is, I think it's my favourite of the not grounded in reality things, and it's a near future, but they, they make the moon look so pretty. <laughs> like, they, they did it all with model work, I think, and even the director was like, yeah, we couldn't afford to have one-sixth G um, to get, so, you know, when they're on the lunar base thing, just normal gravity. But you're fine with that, because, mm. again, you're kind of, like, it, it makes you, transports you there, and you, mm. the, the the views that they have with the, the, the sort of oblique sun in the background and these long shadows and, ah, oh, just, yeah, they, they, they managed to take you there, and, mm. I, you know, I, I want to see more things like that just sort of and, and the moon sometimes gets neglected in favour of more far-flung exotic things and I sometimes worry that you don't need to work that hard mm-hmm. <laughs> Matt, did you, did you tell us what is your favourite moon film? Did I? Um, so the, with the, does does with Odyssey 2001 count as a moon film? I mean, some of it happens yeah. to the moon One of is the that, obelisks is, is on moon the moon, right? One of the, I mean, the, ma- the, the, the obelisks where it all starts is on the moon but also, I mean, just the yeah, just the sleekness of it. I mean, mm. it's it's you know, it, I think you know, Odyssey 2001. I think in in many ways marked the point at which you know the sci-fi production in space turned sleek, kind of fr- you know, kind of. Well, I mean, arguably, it's the inspiration for everything that came after it. Sure, yeah, I mean, sure, but I mean, just in terms of the way it's you know, it's a it's a shift change. It's a step change between. The kind of the, all the ones that we talked about, you know, mm-hmm. from you know, destination moon, the man in the moon, journey to the moon, they're all kind of called the same things, pretty much. But mm-hmm. um, the first man in the moon, all this sort mm-hmm. of thing, you know, that kind of 1950s and 60s, and then this thing hits, and space exploration becomes something else. And when when you watch films like, for instance, I have a few written down here, which is Destination Moon, Apollo 13, Hidden Figures, and they all have this one figure that's very. Um, patriarchal and very yeah. manly yeah. and American. In, There's an American flag flying in the background. Yeah, with, the buzz with, with, yeah, <laughs> with that sort of <laughs> sense of pride or almost nationalism where they say, we can do it because we can and go off and tell your wives that, that this is the only thing you're going to be doing for the next year, things like that. Do we need that? Do Is that part of the whole space race as well, if you like? In terms of the ways produced, I mean, actually, you know, this is just, you know, this is kind of what the Americans do in real life as well. Because if you watch any NASA broadcast when they launch pretty much anything, including when they launch on top of Russian rockets, the guy always says, and they, or, or, or actually many is a guy, but, you know, it's, you know, regardless of the announcer always says... And liftoff of shuttle STS-272, <laughs> bringing parts and supplies to the space station, another first for America's space program. Well, they actually say, continuing <laughs> America's presence in outer space. Mm. It's a scripted line that they have to say three seconds after launch of anything that has American stuff on it. And it is that kind of thing. They do still think that way. And it is part of the way of how Americans build their identity more broadly, I think. So it's not not to say that space is anyone particular, but because of American dominance in those early days, 1960s, 70s, um, 
that has carried on a little bit. Like if you were in terms of asking whether the patriotism is needed, and I, I, I suspect maybe it is. If you want to go to the moon, it's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. And I think at the height of the Apollo program, uh, NASA was drawing 4.5% of the entire US federal budget. These days they get less than half a percent. And so people are like, let's go back to the moon. You're like, well, pay for it. <laughs> you know, this is really expensive. Now, a lot of that is obviously the hardware, but a huge chunk of that is people. You just need people. You need tens of thousands of people to support that scale of a mission. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing to spend money on because it's high-tech jobs. It all comes back in taxes and you're, you're upping your workforce, I guess. And, you know, you're doing something that's arguably not got a, an instant gratification, but that legacy value, I mean, how many people are in science and engineering today because of the moon program? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm. that's a hard number to put a, a, a dot at the end of. Um, but that patriotism for a lot of people is the motivation they would maybe need to get behind something for a whole decade. If you're like, you know, yeah, we've got homelessness, yeah, we've got this, and, and you know, how much we spend on the military, all that kind of thing. But that's maybe what gives you that little that little flame that keeps you going, no, but we have to do this because we feel proud that we're going to do it. And so I I think it can be a healthy thing and it can be a dangerous thing as well. And, uh, and, you know, if you you need that political commitment, you need the financial commitment, Mm -hmm. but you also need the public to be behind it. Yeah. And and that's almost separate from those Mm -hmm. other two things. And so maybe there's another way of doing this where you don't need that patriotism, my country first kind of thing. Um, But then you talk to Mike Collins and he comes back from Apollo 11, having been the one person who didn't get to walk on it. Mm. Um, Neil and Buzz, everybody's catapulted into the limelight and they do this world tour. And he was like, uh, when we went, it was America did it. And then when we came back, it was we did it. And mm-hmm. everywhere they went on the planet, it was, we did it, yay, we did it. And they were getting hugged and thanked and welcomed as, like, you know, ambassadors for the species kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he was he said it was a really sort of humbling thing mm-hmm. because it wasn't just an American mission by that point. It had become something bigger than the pieces, as it were. So that it's really nice to hear Mike talking about that because he's, he's very humble and mm-hmm. just sort of... You know, talks like a normal human being sometimes when you hear him in the interviews. So he's he's my favorite astronaut for that reason. That's how all those films started, right? In the fifties, especially the idea can or the ideas connected and explored in those sci-fi films where we can, you know, if we get to the moon first. And sometimes they were very explicit about who they were fighting against or racing with. Something they were very just like, you know, we just have to get there first in order to either colonize it first or then having the advantage of being able to shoot like a missile from the moon and it's kind of interesting they talk about then the politics of it now and how that you know we managed to agree that actually it doesn't matter who gets there first it's not it no no one can claim it for themselves and i'm just still so surprised that people even have that desire of that you know transposing politics onto things like the space in general and the moon and things like that because you think Surely, can we no, just not yeah. work together and make sure that we all have a claim to it as people rather than, well, I was born in this or that country and so I have a better claim than anyone else. There is this kind of a um, um, a momentum about um, thinking differently about our position as humanity and, and trying to maybe be less, less confrontational and more about striving outwards. So... Well, the last question I wanted to ask you about is women in space, women in films about the moon, and why are there no women that have been to the moon, as far as I know? <laughs> no, no no women. Not, not even in sci-fi, no. which is slightly yeah. doubly depressing, I think, because, mm. you know, you've obviously Apollo decided to send 24 white American males to the moon. 
young fighter pilots. Um, Twelve of them got to walk on the surface, and that's sort of the patriarchy in action there. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's a you know you're 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 getting your astronauts from your flight programs, and as it turns out, the Hidden Figures ladies were there all along, and mm. so people like Poppy Northcutt and um, Joanne Morgan, they were in there in Mission Control and doing their thing, and so it's nice that those stories have, have come to light a little bit in more recent years. Because as a, as an Apollo nerd, I went looking for all these stories, mm. and I didn't know about the computer division and the fact that these women were actually there actively working to help calculate these trajectories. So that's nice, but annoyingly for something like Apollo 13, that limits you to um, the same batch of diversity that you have for getting to the moon. And then when you do your sci-fi, you've got freedom to go wherever. But I cannot think of a good female character going to the moon. Can you think of, like... Sam not, Rockwell, as the, not as the main protagonist, right? Um, I mean, there's some in some of the science fiction movies. There's just more people on the moon. H.G. Wells has a has yeah. a has a woman on but board not, their vessel, yeah. which is nice, but she gets used in that horrible sort of way where she's constantly making mistakes, and the yeah. scientist guy's just getting annoyed. And mm. you're like, yeah. "This is just uh, I, mean, it's, I feel like it's done for comedy, mm. and you're kind of watching it going. No, 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 not no, getting that. Yeah. It's interesting mm. that quite a lot of these films, even from the fifties, had women in them, but they were normally just um, love objects or sort of. A, yep. A, you know, the only reason for them to be there is so that someone can fall in love with them, and that's as far as it goes. Mm. And uh, with the the films about Apollo thirteen, or um, I think actually maybe um, the first man that that was slightly different. I think they did a good job with Claire Foy trying to be a bit more of a of an active protagonist. Yep. Um, Not I much. think that worked <laughs> quite I, I, mean, I think it worked quite well, but it, it, at the same time you don't get to send her, which yeah, is a shame. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the, perhaps yeah, that's the mistake like of the history <laughs> <laughs> rather yeah. than rather than the film. But I feel like even because again you have these wives, that's all women are in these kind of films. They are just wives. But actually you could see the struggle between, you know, I, I mean I guess you could see that Neil was really struggling with the balance of having this job to do and having a family at the same time. Mm. And it's not easy. And I think sometimes it's just portrayed that actually you just, I think this is a line in some of these films. It was in Hidden Figures, which is interesting. Kevin Costner's character, he actually says, you just go home and tell your wives that this is how it's going to be. Um, it's that myth of the explorer, right? I mean, it's not actually outer space. It's just, you know, one of these sort of environments that are being explored. But if you think about any, you know, Antarctica, whatever, mm-hmm. everywhere, and, you know, that early stage was always done in, a, unfortunately, this sort of really non-inclusive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it plays in exactly the same story, stuff that we talked about earlier, about sort of military access, you know, the kind of the ideas about, you know, just going there, planting flags, you know, having this sort of thing. And it is, it is really, really, I think you're right. I mean, there's also quite, still quite a lack of imagination. If you think about like, gravity, right? I mean, she just manages, right? It's like, she doesn't, like, there's no point at which you kind of go like, you know, she just manages. Mm. Yeah, I mean, y- you have sort of good female characters in space. So you've got your Sigourney Weavers and stuff, but she doesn't go to the moon. But there is a yeah. film by uh, Fritz Lang, actually, from 1930, which I was really surprised to find out, and that is called Woman in the Moon. Um, mm. It's a German sci-fi. Yeah. Um, so the woman actually gets to go to the moon, as I understand it. I haven't seen this, but apparently, again, she's just there to fall yeah. with, with the men uh, that are on there. So. Really? But it's interesting. Oh. There, there was a film actually called Woman in the Moon, and it's from the 30s. Yeah. And yeah. Um, again, apparently, that was quite... I mean, it was all the Russian intercosmos program that really 
create you know made space inclusive and you know the russians flew first of all some french astronauts and all sorts of things and then and then of course um the first african-american in space wasn't actually usa american it's actually from cuba uh because there's a cuban astronaut that flew on a, on a russian on a russian mission to i think salute i think that was the, the earliest uh, of their space stations um you know they've had they've had people from um all around the world, middle east uh, etc they've of course had the first women in space um so that's kind of you know you start realize you know it is there is that you know that when I point out like you know there's this kind of astro astronautism, mm-hmm. American you know this kind of it is built on that cult of individuals on flags flying on young fit men doing Penis. crazy things right <laughs> and and there is the opposite which is that kind of humanity vulnerability. Cosmism, which is actually it is, it is a relatively, I mean, it, not just to point out Russian, but Russians because they they were there, they did things. Uh, you know, you can use it as an example. But there's you know there's other there's other cultures that have that a lot more developed that actually care about. And of course, at this point of time, of course, Russia cared about it more than it does now because now they're kind of just you know they're getting more sucked into that individualism macho you, thing. You got to make that conscious choice because yeah. yes, I remember reading that, about the mm. Mercury Thirteen and knowing that they potentially had a pool of women who were good enough to be uh, in the astronaut pool as well um but you've got your valentina tereshkovas and your um everyone from you know that was like the earliest uh russian launches so the mm-hmm. same pro, um ship that yuri gagarin was in and mm. they needed people who were really good parachutists mm. and valentina was so mm. she got the gig and and you know so the, the the at the time that was like the right person for the job easy easy job done yeah, but right. you need to have yeah. a pool that is diverse mm. from yes. which you look for the best person and then gender doesn't maybe matter that much yeah but you know, if you don't have that, if your if your premise is built on not inclusivity, but on a very specific stereotypical myth about you know this is the kind of person that does exploration, this is the kind of people that stay out of exploration because you know they, yeah. for one reason or another. I mean, had, I mean, there's these crazy stories. I mean, some of them are a bit mythical and some of them are actually real. But you know, the engineers at NASA couldn't figure out how many sanitary products should they sent up, and they had to kind of kind of secretly approach her and say like so how, how many how many do we pack up i mean she's like 100 200 like, wow so it's a kind of thing like you know it's just it's just yeah. sort of almost awkward. willfully ignorant yeah <laughs> almost willfully ignorant yeah. because it's just like you know yeah yeah i guess this is pointed out quite well in hidden figures where um the main character she disappears from the room where all the important people are calculating and everything and she disappears for 40 minutes a day, at least once or twice. And then her boss is like, where do you go? What do you think this is? And then she loses it. And she's like, there's no um, toilets for, for me. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, because I am of colour. I need to walk all the way to this other building on the other side of the campus. And it takes me 40 minutes. And then he... You know, as the um, yeah. American hero, there's he, a flag he, there. He, there's he, a flag there. There's no flag, but he takes. I know, out. I know. There's, <laughs> a, there's a metaphorical flag <laughs> yeah, in that yeah, in that yeah, scene yeah, when he grabs you know. a, a huge something and just knocks Take, down that sign, yeah. and it just becomes. Yeah. A I, I don't frame. think that event yeah. ever happened. No, yeah, yeah, I doubt that. I'm yeah. a wee bit into the book, so I'm started reading it because um, okay. it's um it's it's very well researched, and the movie's taken a few liberties to sort of cut the timeline down. But apparently, mm-hmm. Catherine Johnson never ever had to use the other bathroom she was using the bathroom that everyone else was using and oh. didn't even realize she hadn't been supposed to be using it until oh. a few years later and then she went screw it i'm going to keep using it so i was kind of like that's, that's quite a good story and it's all right but mary jackson was the one that had to use okay. the other bathroom so it's okay. they've sort of amalgamated mm-hmm. the stories a little yeah. bit just to to keep the narrative going i think yeah um but kevin costner's character yeah i don't think that event would have ever yeah. happened yeah, no, and he no. seems to be an amalgamation of a few different but actually in in real 
back, you know, the fact that we only had that film now mm-hmm. and, you know, 30 years past the fact nobody was talking about Catherine Johnson, you know, all these, all these yeah, people yeah. that did all this work. Yeah. You haven't solved anything nice. Don't show the guy do things in 1960s and say like, "Oh, this was the end yeah. of it," because it wasn't. Yeah, it really, really wasn't. Mm. It was. It was. It's a slow not creep even a beginning for society. I think. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting because a lot of the hidden figures, it's, it stems from post-war. Mm-hmm. Like they, you know, they, they had a lot more women working for them by mm. virtue of the fact that they needed workforces. Mm-hmm. So people were able to come in and have uh, engineering jobs all of a sudden because they were literally taking on all comers. Mm. And so that was a nice sort of catalyst, I guess. So it sort of broke what would have been a sort of overtly mm. male-dominated thing had things gone on as normal. But war happened, people were missing, and then all of a sudden mm. things yeah. rebalanced it's interesting in a though, sort of healthy way. But obviously the, the integration wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, it takes a right. war yeah, yeah. that wipes out 60 it, million people kind of depressing to realize you have two genders that yeah. are equally good at, at doing math yeah yeah but, but it's awful it's, just, yeah. it's, it's kind of you sort of reading the the, the the story and you're just like yeah this is mad. it's i mean it's so obvious on paper you know, yeah. you know if you're thinking long term you just get people who know how to do it and yeah. that's it yeah um yeah. but so I, that systemic thing's depressing in a way because in the yeah. same way that climate change is going to take 100 years to fix i'm just nervous that even being aware that society is still kind of skewed yeah. Uh, it's going to take a long time to unskew yeah. it, yeah. and you got to constantly nudge it in the right direction and yeah. everything. And but I think as you're saying, I think it's because there's no reason why women can't go to the moon, right? No. There's there's no. no sort of physical or any sort of um, limit there, and so as you're saying, I think it's that's when you start when you unpack, you realize actually this is something very systemic, and first of all, you need to these women have to be available in these jobs in order for them to be picked for um yep. for for the moon yep. landing or whatever absolutely and so yes that is, that is a huge well, you see the so same problem in sort of stem subjects that you know the phrase the leaky pipeline which is a horrible phrase but it's just a, a, you know a, women or even just people from diverse backgrounds in the stem subjects they they trickle away from it over the course of their lifetime and this can start from as early as like mm-hmm. before you're even 12 yeah uh, you can start to see a gender yep. disparity and yeah. then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And by the time you get into faculty positions at universities, the, there's just not enough people yeah. there. And then you need, it's nice to have those role models to then go out and try and boost that. And I think, again, that's just, it takes mm. time to fix because you you can sort of, you can do a little bit of forcing of the system, but I think ultimately it needs society yeah. to sort of all come along together. Yeah. So it's actually, getting better. Yeah, but I had a huge discussion uh, with um, a friend of mine actually years ago when we were talking about the different subject areas that we were studying. Obviously, I was doing media studies at the time and he was doing um, geography or something. Similar. Geology, sorry, yes. So, you know, one could argue that geology is much sort of proper science, you know, yeah, better yeah. science exactly. than, <laughs> than, than media studies. And if your child is growing up thinking, I can only, and it, this is so silly, but I do think that this still happens, I can only play with Barbies instead of cars, then that will determine what you are interested in partially, you know, at the very least. And then, so you already sort of shaping this little human into what they should like or where their interests lie. And so, well, and that is, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just to exemplify that I think that, by the time you get to university and you get to pick what you want to do, whether that's science or whether that's something very cultural, I think already you, you've been shaped by so many different things. It's cumulative, society, isn't it? Yeah, your so parents and everything. That It's no wonder that maybe, you know, historically there were more women in those sort of soft sciences and then you have more men in hard sciences because that pushed that way from very early beginning. I think that's changing now, but I think it, it's it's very simplistic mm-hmm. to say, well... 
it's just the way it works, you know. Yeah, like men no, are just more no, interested yeah. in those kind of things. I, I was, is there a, a Barbie on the moon? Is there like a Barbie in the space suit? Because a Barbie I mean, that's astronaut. The other, that's the other, yeah, Barbie astronaut. Because that's, that's the other thing, right? I mean, it's not because the, the the what we say, you know, Barbies and cars, right? And 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 on one hand, that is somewhat the division. But we forget that it's a, it should be a spectrum, right? It shouldn't just say like, or we shouldn't mm-hmm. be saying that there should be Barbies and there should be cars, right? And that we should have some kind of you know just Barbies robot. in cars. Barbies in cars, right? Barbies in cars. You know, cars that aren't just, you know, speed machines or tanks or whatever. Because, you know, I'd rather not play with a car that is just a speed machine. I'd like to have a car that you can do other things with, like Mm -hmm. nice things. So so I think there's that idea about, you know, just the, the... by the ner- by the virtue of sort of you know abstracting ideas and just limiting things down we've settled on an education system that simplifies the world you know kind of not just education but you know the toys everything that comes comes with that you know kind of how do we you know start how do we develop that early ad- mindset in in children and it's sort of on the basis of easy patterns characterization stereotypes myths you know the kind of you know and I think it'd be just, I think that's not the necessarily the only way. And to explore a bit more about breaking that down and, you know, kind of maybe in a DIY sort of way, but maybe also just trying to encourage people to, to really look out for, because I'm sure there must be out there. Well, getting they back just to need the to go and look for them. And, and, you know, it is on us to actually go and, and do that. On the subject mm. of the women on the moon question, it is remarkable that we're within maybe 10 years of the first women walking on the moon and no movie has a female on the moon yet. Mm. You know, it, uh, you know, yeah. by by the fifties, how many movies had come out that had blokes on the moon? So that that worked. And, and it, you know, and maybe we maybe we shouldn't count the Harryhausen um, person who came along as as wife of or a companion of somebody else. You know, it's mm-hmm. just like somebody that story still needs told. So mm-hmm. that would be nice to see, and hopefully Hollywood will see this and get ready for that, and we'll see something yeah. coming along soon. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. It was so exciting talking to you. And um, hopefully I'll see you at Royal Observatory at some point. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming over. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ali and Matt for speaking to me in this episode. If you're interested in moon films, we would recommend starting off with a classic that is Apollo 13, moving on to something more fresh, a rather easy watch, Hidden Figures, then getting more serious with The First Man and finishing off with, in our opinion, one of the best Films about the moon, The Moon by Duncan Jones. There was also an Apollo 11 documentary released this year, as well as Ad Astra, and this December you can catch Lucy in the Sky with Natalie Portman in the cinemas near you. Thank you for listening.